Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Tatiana Kazesanov. This week, I'm absolutely delighted and deeply honored to have as my guest, Professor Russell Foster. Russell is the head of the Nuffield Laboratory of Ophthalmology, director of the Sleep and Circadian Research Institute, and a fellow of Brasenose College, Oxford. His research addresses the neuroscience of circadian rhythms and sleep, and the health consequences of sleep disruption. Russell is a fellow of the Royal Society and Academy of Medical Sciences, and was honored with a CBE for his services to science. He has published over 250 scientific papers, four popular science books, and received multiple awards. He also um, has a TED Talk, which has, in the meantime, I noticed yesterday, received over 4 million views. So first of all, Russell, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Delighted to join you. Wonderful. So let's get right stuck in. So circadian rhythms and sleep. Let's talk about circadian rhythms first. I think it's a term that probably everybody's heard, but perhaps not everybody really understands what that is. So what are circadian rhythms and why do we have them? Well, they are, of course, incredibly exciting and interesting. I mean, in a sense, you can think of our circadian rhythms as, as being a day within. What we have is an internal biological clock. And it's ticking, and it has a, has a duration of about 24 hours, but not exactly 24 hours. And we'll, and we'll come back to that. Um, and, and so what this clock does is essentially fine-tune and adjust our entire physiology and behavior to, do, to deal with the varied demands of activity and rest and the, the sleep-wake cycle. And so, in a sense, um, before we wake up in the morning, our met- metabolic rate is rising, our uh, our temperature, our core body temperature is rising, our um, stress hormones are rising in anticipation of increased activity and the need to get out there and do our stuff. And of course, at the other end of the day, all of this physiology is, is, is winding down. So core body temperature drops, metabolic rate drops in anticipation of sleep and a completely different uh, metabolic state during the sleep. Uh, a period. So, as I say, they are they are incredibly powerful because what they can do is an, anticipate predictable events of the environment and get our biology um, up and firing and fine tuned to those varied demands. The other thing these circadian rhythms do is that, in addition to aligning internal time with the external world, um, they make sure that all the different rhythmic processes within the body, whether it's digestive secretion, whether it's muscle efficiency and whatever, are all aligned appropriately with one another. So you don't have everything happening at once and things happen in the right sequence at the right time. So they are profoundly important. And as we'll discuss later, disruption of our circadian rhythms and our sleep has a huge impact upon our health. Wonderful. Circadian rhythms, you say, is, is an adaptive process for us as, as animals, mammals, um, to our external environment. That would indicate, of course, our Earth circles. We have a tw- roughly 24-hour day cycle. What happens if somebody is locked up in a cave? Do these rhythms still keep going? Absolutely. And I think that's a really important point because under constant conditions, and this is how you define that they are circadian rhythms, under constant conditions, and this was done in the 1930s, people went down to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky with constant light or very low light and constant temperature and still showed cycles uh, and oscillations. These experiments were followed up 
by a very distinguished uh, biologist called Jürgen Aschoff in the 1960s. And he um, uh, systematically studied these rhythms in humans in bunkers deep in the Bavarian hillsides. And he showed um, and reminded us that these rhythms you know, persist in us. But they have a long history of observation. I mean, people were talking about these oscillations um, sort of in the times of Alexander, but they were thought to be the passive response to the changing uh, light-dark cycles. But then there was an incredible experiment in about 1729 by de Marion, and he took a plant, a mimosa plant, put it in a cupboard, constant darkness, but he peeked in from time to time, and he still noticed that the leaves were opening and closing with about a 24-hour rhythm. So that was the first observation that these rhythms persist under constant conditions. Even in plants, wow, that's, that's in impressive. Plants, and in a sense, there's even uh, photosynthetic bacteria have shown, you know, so it's almost, um, it's almost a signature of life. And certainly when some of the, the Mars uh, exploration was going on, they looked for changes in, 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 in or, or, you know, the, the, the changes in um, uh, carbon fixation and other processes that would might be a signature of life. Now, the Martian day is slightly longer than the Earth day. It's about 24 hours and 36 minutes. So they were looking for a slightly longer rhythm. I guess that has deep implications if we should ever want to go somewhere else other than planet Earth, right? <laughs> well, there are some interesting predictions, as we'll, as, as we'll come on to, when we need to talk about how you lock on those rhythms to the external world. Right. Well, perhaps that's a good point that, that we should yet okay. now go on to. So why don't, you, why don't you tell us more about that? So it's great having this clock, which is adjusting, fine-tuning to the very demands of the outside world but it has to be set with, with respect to the outside world. And the classic mismatch between internal time and external time is jet lag. You eventually get over jet lag primarily, but not exclusively as a result of exposure to the new light dark cycle. So it's the light dark cycle, particularly at dawn and dusk that sets the internal clock to the external world. Now there's been a lot of confusion about this over the past few years. The only light sensors, that can detect this, this light-dark cycle in mammals, including us, of course, are receptors within the eye. Now, birds and reptiles actually have other light sensors, other photoreceptors, which they can use, but we only have those receptors within the eye. But what turned out to be truly extraordinary is that we discovered that it wasn't the classical visual cells, the rods and the cones, that were detecting this light, the ones that we're using now to see each other. It wasn't a visual receptor, but there was a third receptor system within the eye um, uh, called a photosensitive retinal ganglion cell. Those, those cells in the retina that form the optic nerve, about one out of every hundred of those is directly light sensitive using a special light sensitive molecule or photopigment called melanopsin, which peaks in the blue part of the spectrum. And so what this has told us is that you can be visually blind and some People tragically have lost their rods and cones as a result of genetic disease, for example. But if you've still got those photosensitive retinal ganglion cells, you may not be aware of it. It's unconscious light detection, but you can still detect light to regulate the internal clock. And this is having a big impact upon the way we define blindness and indeed how we might advise patients with different sorts of eye diseases about what they should be doing in terms of, of getting enough light exposure. Now, there are, of course, individuals who have no eyes. And tragically, those individuals um, just drift through time. The clock keeps on ticking, but it's got no alignment to the external world. 
and we're working with uh, Blind Veterans UK uh, to try and find ways in which we can fool the brain into thinking it's seen light to set the clock of these individuals to the external world. And what we think we have is some, some uh, new drugs which will mimic the effects of light on, on the biological clock. So we've done the work on, on mice, and now we're gonna move into humans in the next few years. So hopefully, I, I think, I, I think the, the important thing to appreciate is the eye gives us our sense, of, our sense of space through vision, but it also gives us our sense of time because of its ability to adjust the internal clock. And so what we hope we can do is give back to these individuals who've lost their eyes at least a sense of time. It's fascinating. Um, that sort of leads me on to think about, you know, it's very trendy these days to, for people to be wearing these, these blue blocking glasses. So that is actually really scientifically a valid option, perhaps, to help you get to sleep at night or whatever. Yes. It's, not, it's not a marketing trick. No, it, there's, there's a lot of confusion, though, about the sort of light we need to, to regulate the clock. So, so, for example, there's been a lot of discussion about e-books and, and, and the light coming from computer screens. The data is no more than suggestive. In fact, there was a big study from Harvard which looked at people using an e-book for four hours on five consecutive nights, and the e-book was turned up to its maximum intensity, and that delayed sleep onset by only 10 minutes. So whilst I think as a rule of thumb, it makes sense to minimize light exposure before you go to bed because light exposure will increase alertness and that will delay sleep onset. The real role of the devices versus the energizing effect of reading eight emails or, 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 or interacting with your friends uh, on social media, it perhaps is more important. We've got to get some decent studies here. Interesting. So how does a circadian rhythm or the brain that is running this clock actually um, directly determine when and how we want to go to sleep and actually the sleep process? Because sleep disruption and sleep is, is such a big issue at the moment. I mean, as, as I mentioned to you um, when, I, when I wrote to you, um, so many people that listen to this podcast are actually therapists. And one of the major issues is insomnia. So many people suffer um, not being able to sleep. And the other end of the scale is those who don't have insomnia have kind of grown up with this idea that sleep is for sissies and you don't actually need it and it's a waste of time. So let's get into that a little bit. How important right. is sleep and how does it actually happen? What are the processes? So the first point, I think, is that sleep is immensely important. We used to, I think, for, for decades, think that this was um, a downtime when the brain wasn't really doing very much. What we've now shown uh, um, and wonderful studies all over the world is that whilst we sleep, the brain is consolidating memories. So stuff that's come in during the day is then retained. It sort of, in a sense, becomes wired into the, to, into the brain. But more important than that, it's not just the retention of facts. The brain is also manipulating information. So if you want to come up with innovative solutions to complex problems, a night of sleep has been shown profoundly to um, increase our ability to process information. Increasingly, we're finding that um, uh, the clearance of toxins from the brain, so beta amyloid, which has been associated with the buildup of Alzheimer's and dementia, uh, that seems to be cleared primarily during the sleep process. And I wouldn't say that disrupted sleep is going to cause dementia or Alzheimer's, but there's now, I think, reasonably good evidence to suggest that 
if you are predisposed to those conditions, this will disrupted sleep certainly won't help. So there's also the rebuilding of metabolic pathways. There's the, the realignment of all of our physiology. There's tweaking up in, uh, of, of the immune system. So, so much of our ability to function during the day, both our brain state and our physiological state is dependent upon a good night of sleep. And of course, very rapidly, we know that if you don't get sleep, our biology falls apart. But sleep, of course, is more than just the circadian rhythms. The biological clock within the brain the master clock within the brain, the suprachiasmatic nuclei within the hypothalamus, is critically important. And in a sense, what it does is timestamp, saying now is the appropriate time to be awake and now is the appropriate time to be asleep. But there are other timers. And the other critical timer is what's called the homeostat. And that basically means the longer you've been awake, the greater the buildup of sleep pressure and the greater the need for sleep. And so this homeostat and the clock need to interact very closely together. Again, the classic mismatch between these two, two processes is, is night shift work, where you're incredibly tired, but your biological, biological clock is saying, no, 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 this is, this, and this is the time you should be uh, asleep. And yet you're forcing yourself to stay awake. So the next day when you're trying to sleep, the clock is saying, no, you should be, this is, this is daytime, you should wake up. Um, uh, but, but the homeostat is saying, no, no, I'm chronically de sleep deprived, which means that the sleep you get during the day after night shift work is usually very short and very disruptive. So it's poor quality sleep. Um, and, and, and so you've got these, these two timers. And of course, in our society, you've got the alarm clock, which is then again, forcing a different sort, an external sort of sleep rate timing. And what they're doing is interacting with multiple brain structures. Um, and all the key neurotransmitter systems within the brain, which are turning you from the state of consciousness uh, into the state of sleep. And this flip-flop um, is absolutely profound. It involves so many different sort of uh, interactions, brain structures and neurotransmitters. So the complexity of sleep makes it immensely vulnerable to, to disruption. And of course, with so many disruptive elements within our society today, I think, I think in a sense, as we've invaded the night as a society, sleep has very much been the first victim. So Mr. Edison has a lot to answer for with his uh, commercialization of the light bulb. <laughs> Um, Edison, I mean, has made some extraordinary statements. I mean, he, he said that, uh, if I can remember it correctly, sleep is a criminal waste of time and a throwback to our cave days. And I think that really has sort of in many ways encapsulated our, 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 our modern view about sleep up until fairly recently. Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly something that perhaps employers and, and organizations really have to start taking into account so that, you know, when the employee takes a 10 minute nap in the afternoon, maybe he's not being lazy. He's actually just doing something that's really good for his physiology. Yes. Yes and no. I mean, I think I, I, there's, there's a couple of interesting issues there. First of all, what do we mean by sleep? Um, and I think today we tend to think of, of sleep as being a continuous block of, of eight hours, if we're lucky. But there's very good evidence that in the recent past, humans didn't have a, a continuous block of sleep, but it was either biphasic, two episodes, or polyphasic, multiple episodes. And what would happen is that in, and we see this still in, in societies where there's no electric light, is that as dusk you know, proceeds, there's a two hour sort of quietening down relaxation, then four hours of sleep, um, and then wake up, wander around, interact, uh, then go back to sleep again, and then a two-hour transition out. And so 
I think many people who wake up in the middle of the night think, oh my goodness, that's it. I'm never going to get back to sleep a bit again. I might as well have a cup of coffee, start doing my emails and all the rest of it. And actually, if you lie there quietly or if you don't want to, if you start to get frustrated, go to another place other than the sleeping room, read quietly, keep the lights low, do something relaxing, and chances are you will fall back to sleep. It's actually quite interesting. We, many of us wake up, wake up, uh, up and then fall back to sleep again. It's only when it's a little bit longer that we start to get anxious. And it's that anxiety that prevents us getting back to sleep. So key point, if you wake up in the middle of night, it's not necessarily the end of the sleep episode. That's very important, actually, because I think you're exactly right. There's a huge amount of anxiety. I know my mother was a terrible insomniac, and she would often wake in the middle of the night about three o'clock or something like that in the morning and not be able to get back to sleep. But it was probably now I think about it exactly what you're saying, that she actually never yes. gave herself the opportunity to relax right. back into yes. it. So, And I think that's it. Knowing that it's part of a biological process where one is in a sense, programmed to partly wake up and, and also then to go back down to sleep again. Yeah. Right. The other thing I think is important to appreciate is that people's sleep is very, very variable. and One size does not fit all. There's been a tendency to say you must get eight hours. Well, I would quite strongly disagree with that. Some people need, without problems, nine or more hours of sleep. Um, and some can get by genuinely on six hours of sleep. I think less than six is is probably unlikely, but there's lots of flexibility. And also sleep timing can be hugely different between individuals. There's morning types, the larks, and there's evening types, types the owls. And, you know, larks, as you know, like to get up early and go to bed early. Um, and uh, owls are the complete opposite. And I think it's, it's tuning into what your sleep time, your natural sleep timing patterns are, and then defending those, that's extremely important. Um, uh, and that's, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, how do we know how much sleep we need? Well, if you need an alarm clock to get you out of bed, if it takes you a long time to wake up, if you're using stimulants to, like caffeine to drive the wake state, if you are wanting a nap in the middle of the afternoon, we should come back to naps. If you um, are then using sedatives at night, uh, such as alcohol or um, uh, 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 sleeping tablets to counteract all this caffeine that you've been taking in. If you're oversleeping at weekends, these all are highly suggestive that you're not getting enough sleep and you need to sort of, in a sense, deconstruct your sleep needs. And, and, and many people can do this on holiday when, when you don't have the pressures of work and you can then unmask your sort of natural biology and then try and align that with your with your social and your work commitments right and the requirement for sleep changes i think also with age doesn't it i mean i notice you know i have a teenage daughter and she can sleep for 10 hours um if i slept for 10 hours i wake up and i feel horrible um yeah. but then again the flip side of that is is a lot of elderly people need a much less sleep they they perhaps sleep more during the day i don't know but they tend to yeah. actually not appear not to need as much sleep is that is that validated by the science yeah, I, I mean, the science is not, certainly sleep patterns change as we age. I mean, a young baby can, can sleep for 18, 19, 20 hours a day in firstborns. Um, and, and the structure of sleep, this REM versus non-REM sleep that we may get onto also changes as we, as we, get, as we get older. Whether elderly people um, need less sleep um, 
is unclear. They certainly get less sleep. Um, and we, we should perhaps touch on napping now because it influences both teenagers and the elderly. Um, we talked about the two processes timing sleep, the internal clock, and then this homeostat. The longer you've been awake, the greater the need for sleep. And what a nap will do is push back the, the, the sleep pressure. So many teenagers, for example, get up chronically tired, they struggle through the day at school, they then go home and they sleep for two hours, which pushes back the sleep pressure, which means they then can't get to sleep um, at a reasonable time that night. Because the alarm clock is driving them out of bed, um, then they've had a very shortened sleep episode, so they wake not fully rested, chronically tired, and they need a nap. And so this cycle of shorter sleep and longer naps during the day can be immensely disrupted. And, and, and teenagers are very vulnerable to that. But so are um, the elderly who, um, for other reasons, perhaps because they don't have the same work and social constraints, um, uh, will tend to go to bed late, may have very disrupted sleep, and then they may have um, uh, naps during the day, which then further disrupts the sleep timing at night. So you've got to be careful about, slap, uh, about naps. The rule of thumb is, sure, the occasional nap is fine, um, and it might be quite useful. It certainly will improve your ability to function during the second half of the day. But try and make that nap no longer than 20 minutes, because the argument is if you go for longer, you fall into deeper sleep, and then waking up from deeper sleep means that you're left somewhat groggy. And in a sense, you, 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 you've um, uh, negated the, the, the beneficial aspect of that short nap. So napping, you have to be careful about. Right, right. So what do you think actually causes this, this epidemic that we have of, of insomnia? Is, is this more of a kind of a stress related or is there something physiological going on? I think it's a really good question. My feeling is that it's, it's essentially what we're imposing upon ourselves and what society is expecting from us, which is actually good because it means that in a sense, we, we can therefore change it. We, we, are not, we don't have to sort of put up with poor sleep. There's things that we can do about it. Um, and certainly anxiety and all the pressures that are placed on, on individuals is overwhelming. I mean, I was talking to um, a group of... Um, of young mothers fairly recently and they said we just just can't cope um, you know and of course nobody's actually pointed out that biologically they're not they would never have been expected to cope so as we've gone from the extended family to the nuclear family where the parents and usually just one of the parents the mother is doing all of the childcare. this is complete nonsense because up until fairly recently the extended family would take part in child care and in many um, societies today that's still the case so when you were feeling chronically tired because you've been woken up at the night then the baby would be given to a sister or a mother uh, and there would be um, some time to, to, to catch up with sleep and, and recuperate now I think it's a really good example uh, the, the young mother is expected to do it all and biologically we've never evolved to be like that in fact if you look at all primate societies care of the young is an extended um, uh, activity across the, the familial and societal group and we've forgotten that and there's also this guilt oh my goodness I'm a, I'm a bad mother because I can't cope couldn't possibly cope biologically um, and so I think that's a good example where we've where we've disconnected our biology with this bizarre sort of societal expectation 
We've got to re-equilibrate. Right. Yeah, it's, I think that's true for so many things, isn't it? That our, yes, our modern way of living hard. is just actually really not conducive to yes. good health. So, so let's dive a little bit deeper into that question of health. In, in what way does sleep affect your health? Okay, so we could look at three levels. Um, the short-term effects of sleep dep- deprivation, and we've all experienced this. Um, and so the failure to consolidate memory, the failure to process information. But there are some other really important things as well. You get increased impulsivity so that, oh, yes, I can make that red traffic light, when, of course, you can't. You fail to pick up the social signals of others, and you lack empathy. So social interaction begins to break down. So the brain's functioning at every level, whether it's the processing of information or social interactions or making sensible, non-irresponsible decisions are all profoundly affected with relatively short amounts of sleep disruption. I mean, some of the, 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 the accidents that we've seen, I mean, Chernobyl, I think, is a good example, occurred in the middle of the night shift. Um, a, a group of fairly young, uh, tired uh, individuals who, who were essentially jockeying around and could not perceive the consequences of their actions. Now, it wasn't a very well-built reactor, but the, but the explosion led to, it was due to human error and the failure to see consequences of, of, of actions. And, and sort of going back to our modern world, you know, how many of us have, have been tired and have fired out that email um, uh, at, at an inappropriate time? Think, oh my God, did I really say that? Um, and I, so I have the 24-hour rule before I ever want to send a, a, an offensive uh, email. Uh, and I know I'm tired because I've been traveling or something. I wait 24 hours and reflect upon it. Um, so there's the short-term stuff. Then the sort of thing that you see in the chronically sleep-deprived, as we see in, in uh, shift workers, but also increasingly individuals who don't do shift work, but just have very reduced sleep duration. There are some quite big issues. Um, what seems to be clear is that the metabolic axis changes very badly. And, and in fact, it's quite interesting that tired people tend to release um, hunger hormones. So they tend to eat more and they eat more at the wrong time of day. And so you get a distortion of metabolism, an increase in calorific intake, uh, predisposes you to obesity and things like diabetes too. And in fact, my colleague, um, Ev Van Kouter in the University of Chicago has argued that part of the childhood obesity is associated with the greatly reduced sleep that kids are getting these days, releasing the hunger hormone. Food, of course, is much more freely available than it was in the recent past. And so this is predisposed to weight gain. Um, weight gain, of course, is associated with things like sleep apnea and, and, and a relaxation of the musculature of the throat and, and terrible snoring and further disruption of sleep. Sleep disruption is associated also um, with immune suppression. In fact, actually, that's both short and long term. I mean, one night of, of no sleep can, can reduce the efficiency of um, natural killer cells, part of the immune system, by 24%. Wow. And so that hit of um, uh, that drop in, in immunity has been correlated with higher rates of cancer, uh, breast cancer and colorectal cancer in night shift nurses and indeed infection. What's the causation? We're not sure, but if you're tired and you need to override this overwhelming need, this biological imperative to sleep, then you're releasing the stress hormone, cortisol. And the one thing we know about cortisol is that it suppresses the immune system. 
you're also probably activating the stress axis uh, across the board. So, of course, you're throwing glucose into the circulation, which makes things worse, but you're also increasing blood pressure. So cardiovascular disease is also higher in long-term night shift workers. So, so, so long-term poor sleep is not just the inconvenience of feeling tired at the wrong time. It has a, a global impact upon our health and overall well-being. The third category, which we'll probably come on to, is the relationship between sleep disruption and mental health. If you are predisposed to depression, anxiety, or indeed bipolar schizophrenia, um, then uh, sleep disruption can exacerbate and perhaps either slide you in to that, that pathological state or make it worse. And so I think people who are vulnerable to those conditions really, really must safeguard their sleep. And we've done a lot of work on the relationship between mental health and sleep disruption. In schizophrenia, for example, the sleep-wake patterns of those individuals are absolutely smashed. So, you know, they're, 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 there's, there's, as a result, social isolation, the failure to, to get to appointments, and, of course, overall poor health problems. The life expectancy of somebody with schizophrenia is 25 years less than um, somebody who has not got schizophrenia. And the broader impact of, of, of um, sorry, I've just got a message, the broader health uh, uh, impacts of, of sleep disruption on those individuals is never really considered as part of a sleep problem. Uh, so the sleep problem is always thought of as a consequence of the mental health problem. And it's, that's not a sensible way to think about it. In mental health conditions like schizophrenia, I think there's a genuine overlap in those neural circuits and neurotransmitter systems in the brain that are giving rise to normal sleep and giving rise to normal mental health. And if there's a change in a neurotransmitter that predisposes you to a mental health state, because the sleep systems draw from all those key brain neurotransmitters, it's almost certainly going to have an effect upon sleep at some level. So there's a mechanistic overlap that predisposes you. And of course, the, the schizophrenia, the behavior, might actually make the sleep problem worse, and the sleep problem may exacerbate the, the, the extent. So you have this interesting set of reactions. But we've been able to test that. So we found, for example, we've taken genes that have been linked to human schizophrenia, we've, we've mutated those in a mouse, and then looked at the sleep pattern. And the sleep pattern has been profoundly changed, showing a direct mechanistic overlap. In bipolar, for example, uh, if the abnormal um, behavior is, 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 is not simply giving rise to the abnormal sleep. We might see abnormal sleep in those individuals who are at risk of develop, developing mental health conditions. So uh, those kids who are at high risk of developing bipolar, for example, uh, versus low risk of developing bipolar, already have an abnormal sleep uh, uh, um, pattern prior to a clinical diagnosis of bipolar. And then finally, I think, and perhaps most excitingly, we could think, therefore, of sleep as a new therapeutic target for mental illness. If we can consolidate sleep, we may, or partially or completely, we can um, perhaps reduce the severity of, of the symptomology, or maybe even stop a slide into the pathological state. And we have a data, data published in 2017, uh, led by my colleague Dan Freeman, showing that uh, individuals whose uh, who sleep was partially um, stabilized showed lower levels of hallucinatory experiences and delusional experiences. So yeah, I think, I think the study of sleep within the context of mental health could be profoundly important. 
absolutely, absolutely. Which kind of makes me also think about, I mean, there's an absolute epidemic these days of, of things like ADHD and autism. And um, is could that be something which is perhaps also related to the fact that young children um, are very restricted? Because a lot of these symptoms sometimes don't actually show up. Um, they don't show up straight away at birth. Sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. They come a bit later. Is it, do you think that that could have a correlate? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, certainly in, in autism, um, one, of, one of the symptoms is very poor sleep. Um, and the extent to which you can stabilize sleep in those individuals and have a positive impact upon on the, the autistic features, I think is something that needs to be studied. Um, but it hasn't been systematically. There's some some work that's been done in that area, but I but I think a lot more needs to be done, and and we might be able to, as I say, use sleep as a therapeutic target in, in across the mental health spectrum. Yeah, it's the other thing we're finding, incidentally, is that uh, in neurodegenerative diseases um, such as dementia and Alzheimer's, uh, sleep is absolutely falling apart, and indeed, the primary reason that a family will um, uh, send their loved one off to a nursing home um, is uh, because this individual is wandering around in the middle of the night waking everybody up. And so, in a sense, you can deal with the, the, the tragic um, features of dementia of loss of memory and recognition and change of behavior. But the thing that, that really disrupts a family is, is the fact that they are then uh, being disrupted, their sleep is being disrupted. And it'd be amazing if we could find ways in which we could consolidate sleep in those individuals, because it would delay the time at which you then had to institutionalize those individuals, saving, of course, money, but also the whole of the, the emotional impact on those decisions. Yeah, absolutely. You There's mentioned... actually a very nice study by um, Alsvan Summeren, who went into uh, a nursing home in the Netherlands and increased the amount of light in the day areas um, and decreased the, the amount of light in the bedrooms, so darkness in the bedrooms. And uh, in many of those individuals, he turned very ragged sleep-wake patterns into a beautiful sleep-wake profile. And critically, in those individuals who whose sleep was improved, they, sh they had overall reported much better sense of well-being, uh, their cognition went up by 10%. So the extent to which the cognitive decline we see in the elderly is due to the fact that their sleep is sliding because of the failure to get a robust exposure to a light-dark cycle, as we were discussing earlier, I think is also a very interesting area. And we don't really pay enough attention to that in, in those uh, institutions. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, that's actually really true because I, this a feature I've noticed is, is a, in a lot of nursing homes um, is it's, it's quite low light, you know. And you see people sitting there with their heads hanging and, it, and, it's, and it's, the, the whole impression is that everything is dulled and perhaps yes. actually a little bit more light would, you yes. know. And, and certainly that people are now paying attention um, to that sort of problem within intensive care. I was talking to some right. of my colleagues here in Oxford fairly recently. And, the, and in those intensive care wards, of course, it's basically constant noise and constant light. And we're now starting a study about what's going on with sleep in those, in those individuals. And can we improve sleep in those uh, individuals? And could this improve... Um, post-intensive care outcomes. Um, and so I think there's loads of areas where, where these sorts of studies could make a big difference in the health sector. 
In fact, actually anybody who's ever been in hospital will know that you get woken up very early in the morning. Perhaps yeah. that's something we should think, consider changing yeah. to, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, one of the things that you mentioned earlier on was was this kind of habit that a lot of people get into of, of using stimulants like like nicotine and and caffeine during the day and then having to kind of like have the downers at night. We also hear an amazing amount about the increase in addictions and particularly, for example, in the US now, this massive opiate addiction. Now, these substances give the semblance of sleep, but it's not actual real sleep. Could you talk a, a little very, very more about point. that? Yeah, the, these, these agents, I mean, alcohol is a classic example. Um, many, many people um, self-medicate on alcohol or on the antihistamines that get through the blood-brain barrier, things like amphenogen, to sedate themselves. And those sedatives um, are what it says on the tin. They sedate. They do not provide a biological mimic for sleep. And things like alcohol, for example, can very much affect memory consolidation and the processing of information. And so, in a sense, you wake from a sedative-induced sleep um, you you haven't had the benefits from it. And then, of course, you need more stimulants and then you need more sedatives. So this stimulant-sedative feedback loop is a, a, a sort of a, an expanding feature of the developed and the developing uh, nations. And it's across the age spectrum. Um, teenagers um, are increasingly dependent. I mean, I, I had a, a very chilling discussion with a 13-year-old young lady from a, a school uh, in Liverpool and I said, you know, what's your sleep like? And she said, it's um, fine. It's great. I said, this is wonderful. You know, what are your secrets? You know, tell us, because most of your, your mates here are telling us that you've had some problems. And um, she said, oh, well, I, my mother just gives me her sleeping tablets. This is a 13-year-old. Um, and, and the mother's doing this. And I said, well, how do, you, how do you cope the next day? She said, well, it's not great. But after about three Red Bulls, I can get going. Um, and so this is, this is, I mean, here's... The most complicated structure in the new, known universe is the human brain, and yet we are we are we are forcing we're 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 driving it with sedatives and stimulants, and it's developing at the age of thirteen. God knows what the impact of that on the developmental processes will be. The other thing that I think is so important is that that the failure at an educational level for kids and parents to understand why sleep should be protected and valued. Um, and I think it's getting across. I mean, we've just completed um, a pilot study where we haven't done anything other than arm the teachers with the information to teach the kids the importance of sleep. And we looked quantitatively of the impact of an educational intervention. And if you look at the spectrum of insomnia across these teenagers, it was very, very broad. And I'd say about 20 to 30 percent of those kids would have a clinical level of insomnia. However, that group after sleep education showed a huge improvement and a diminishment of the levels of insomnia. So education, I think, is an incredibly valuable tool, but it's something that is not systematically um, uh, uh, delivered in our school systems at all. Um, I had a, an early, early call this morning with some colleagues in Australia um, about whether we couldn't, between Oxford and, and the University of Western Australia, to extend these sleep education packages you know, across the two, uh, across the two uh, territories. So uh, it's moving, but it's, it just amazes me that we haven't done more. And we fill our kids with so much knowledge, 
And yet for 30% of their biology, uh, sleep biology, we, we arm them with no information at all. Yeah, I think that's very, very true. I mean, I think, I think so many things are really necessary to arm our children with in terms of knowledge. I mean, sleep, of course, absolutely paramount. But I mean, let's face it, they don't even really understand very much about nutrition or managing stress and all of those other things. And I think well, these things are fun. It's a very good point back to where we started, because this, this educational package had three components to it. One was letting the kids know about the biology what are the mechanisms and, and, and arming them with that then talk about some practical measures about how to improve your sleep um, and how you can tell if you're not getting enough sleep as we discussed um, but that third component was stress management and 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 how to wind down and i think that is is incredibly important because i think that's a lot of the problems that that, that society is facing this incredible driven anxiety induced stress because of the way we structure our lives. Yeah, absolutely. So for the person on the street who perhaps doesn't have a full-blown sleep disorder, um, we, we haven't actually talked about that, perhaps we should, um, but what, what would be some, some tips um, about how to develop and maintain a, a healthy sleep culture, a healthy sleep habit? Yes. And, and it's the sort of thing that, frankly, our grandparents would have told us. I mean, first of all, you need to you need to embrace sleep as your friend, and not just think of it as something that you you have to do. Um, you should define how how much sleep you need. And as we discussed, um, you know, if, if you're oversleeping at weekends, you're not getting enough sleep. You should defend, you know, prioritize your sleep. Find out what you need, and then make your sleeping space um, uh, the place for sleep. So get rid of those um, social media devices, get rid of the televisions, um, make sure that the room can be dark um, and that street lighting isn't coming in or other sorts of lighting. Make sure it's not too warm. It's very interesting that many people um, have way, way too hot bedrooms. And it seems that part of sleep initiation is, is, is a drop in core body temperature. And if the room is too hot, you can't show that drop in core body temperature and it's more difficult to get to sleep. So, so there's the temperature, there's the, there's the lighting, um, wind down half an hour beforehand. And for goodness sake, don't take caffeinated drinks, you know, much after lunchtime. Um, the light exposure is quite important too. I mean, I think it's ironic that one of the last things we do before we go to bed is stand in the most brightly lit room in the house, the bathroom. The bathroom, yeah. The brightly illuminated mirror. And I think those levels of light are probably not a good idea. And so minimizing light exposure before you go to bed. Um, so some of those would be some of the keys. The, the other thing, which is really obvious, is invest in a good mattress, good bedding. Um, and uh, it really does help. Uh, the other thing that people have tried is to associate the sleeping space, usually the bedroom, with a, something that you associate with sleep. And some people use smells, lavender or other sorts of things, and say, ah, yes, that is the smell of sleep. And so in a sense, it sort of predisposes the wiring of the brain to say, all right, I'm now moving into the sleep state. Um, don't have arguments before you go to bed. It's all that. So don't have those different. Absolutely don't. My do mother that. always said that to me. Never go to bed on an argument. She said. And, you know, and as I said, you know, it's our, our parents and our grandparents, you know, embraced sleep in a way. As so did they did. They did in the pre-industrial era. I mean, mm -hmm. 
Shakespeare and the sonnets and the plays are completely littered with allusions to sleep. Um, uh, sleep, sleep, nature's soft nurse, or and, and why have I frighted thee? And and um, the honey heavy dew of slumber. I mean, these they 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 appreciated sleep and embraced it, and and intuitively realised that it makes us, in a sense, the most extraordinary creature that we are. Our sense of humour, our capacity to invent things, our ability to interact are all so dependent upon a good night of sleep. Absolutely. If somebody is experiencing problems with sleeping, are there anything, is there anything that they can do or take? Um, uh, yeah. We hear a lot about people taking um, melatonin, for example, for um, if they're to try and get over jet lag. My personal experience with that is it depends very much when you take it. And also it doesn't, it doesn't shift your sleep cycle much more than maybe sort of half an hour, an hour or something. You, you know, you're not going to get over a six hour jet lag with a, with a time difference rather with, no. with that. Um, I, what about melatonin and other things and even yeah. things like sleeping tablets, do they really help? I think I think sleeping tablets can be beneficial as long as you don't become dependent upon them. So you can, you know, have a period of right. You know, I've got really disruptive sleep. I'm going to take a few um, sleeping tablets just to try and readjust my, my sleeping uh, pattern. Um, but but it depends on the problem you have. Um, so uh, for many people, it's I can't get to sleep at night. Um, and what you can do is change your light exposure, and that really does work. So, for example, light doesn't have the same effect at different times of the day. So morning light advances the clock, makes you get up earlier, whereas evening light delays the clock and makes you get up later. One of the problems with uh, university students and teenagers is that, of course, they um, are missing morning light, but experiencing lots of evening light, which delays the clock. So they're, they're, they're actually delaying their clock. And to correct that, it's brutal, but it does work, is you need to set the alarm and then in, impose a morning light exposure. And that will then advance the clock and then it'll be easier to get up. Um, and so that has been done. Either you get out there and you get natural light or through light boxes. And, and, and they, they can work. Um, so we've had sort of the occasional use of sleeping tablets, um, the, the getting the light right, morning light exposure in particular is very valuable for people who are struggling to get to sleep at night. Um, but I think that in terms of melatonin, there's a lot of um, uh, misinformation about it. So it's often called the sleep hormone, which is really not uh, um, accurate. What we know about melatonin is that it's, produced from the pineal gland, a, a pea-like structure in the middle of the middle of the brain. Um, and it essentially is released at night. So uh, uh, the, the clock, the eye sets the clock, the clock then drives a pattern of melatonin so that the duration of dark encodes the duration of melatonin release. Um, now that melatonin pattern feeds back on the master clock in the brain and probably helps it um, reinforces the light signal. So it does have some regulatory ad adjustment. Um, and so for example, we know this, uh, in some people who have no eyes, if they're given melatonin at the same time every evening, in some of them, you can slowly lock on the clock to the melatonin signal. It's not very effective. The other thing about melatonin is that um, it, it, in some people, 
has a slight sedative effect. And so then about 70% of people, if you take three milligrams of melatonin, you can reduce the time it takes to get to sleep. But it isn't, again, extremely powerful. Um, is it dangerous? Well, we don't have any clear evidence that it's dangerous. Um, but that doesn't mean to say we should just take it ad libitum. Um, and in this country, I think quite rightly, it, you can't just buy it over the counter. It is not a, a, a natural, naturally occurring product. And that's why you can buy it, of course, in, um, in, in, in the States. I slightly worry about melatonin because of its similarity to serotonin, which, of course, is a very important brain neurotransmitter involved in mood regulation. I think people could, in theory, overdose on melatonin, and it might interfere with those serotonin receptors um, and therefore alter mood. There is some anecdotal suggestion that it, in fact, can cause depression. And I think you're absolutely right. Unless you know where the body clock is, and you just take your three milligrams of melatonin, it can confuse the clock even further. I mean, I played with it a bit when I was visiting Australia fairly regularly, and I found that for me, it didn't work. And in fact, it took me longer to adjust than if I just got the light timing right. And basically, um, you know, you, you, for the first two to three days, you avoid morning light, and you seek out afternoon light, and that drags the, the clock forward. And I think I was taking melatonin at the wrong biological clock time, which is confusing the light, light signal a bit. So um, uh, I'm not a great fan. Um, do we have anything better? Well, I should, I should declare a, a conflict here. We are working on drugs based upon our understanding of how light interacts with the molecular clockwork. And we have, as I said earlier, in mice, shown that there's a, there's a drug that, that remarkably um, can, can fool the clock into thinking it's seen light. It, it, it activates the same pathway. Will this ultimately be useful for uh, patients and things like jet lag? I suspect it will, but we haven't shown it yet. We're now at that stage where we're going from the mouse work to the human trials. Um, I'm pretty confident it will because we understand the biology. We know what's going on. Um, we don't really know quite what's going on with um, melatonin. Right. Actually, that, that leads me to another question, which is, mice are nocturnal. Well, <laughs> is, there, is, the, is the data from mice really sort of really um, compatible to, to a diurnal human? <laughs> completely right. Um, and, and of course, uh, so much drug testing is on, um, uh, on nocturnal animals, and it's extrapolated to our wake time. So, you know, you wake a mouse up in the middle of, its, of, its, of the light of the day when it's asleep, it's sleep physiology, and you then say, oh, well, this drug has had this effect. This is what it's going to do in humans. You absolutely can't do that. Toxicity testing uh, over the 24-hour day in mice can vary between 10% and 80%. Um, and uh, depending upon when you take drugs can hugely affect their efficacy, not least the anti-cancer drugs. Um, an old study by Rivard and colleagues looked at childhood leukemia, for example, and showed that morning versus early evening treatment with this cocktail of, of anti-cancer drugs, if you had the early evening cocktail, it increased um, overall life expectancy by a factor of two and a half. Wow, so that, that's significant. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so um, we are very sensitive to this. What's interesting, though, uh, and, and so first of all, the melatonin thing, um, Mice are act, uh, active at night and their melatonin is high um, because melatonin is released at night. And so in, in, in the case of mice, it can't possibly be 
a sleep-inducing agent. What it is, is uh, a, 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 a biological indicator of, of the dark. And then the body will use that signal in lots of different ways. Now, we are very, very sensitive to the fact that we need to do the drug testing at the right time. As it turns out, however, what we kind of, I think, the field expected is that the, the molecular clockwork in a diurnal animal and a nocturnal animal would have been completely opposite. They're not. That the master clock in the brain is exactly the same in, in a mouse as it is in a human. It's the downstream decision to decide whether you're going to be a nocturnal or a, or a diurnal, a day active or a night active animal. And we don't understand what that switch is. But the, but the phasing, the timing of the, of the clock itself is the same between uh, rodents and humans. Fascinating. What about other sort of like light sensitive things? I the vitamin D springs to mind. I, I know there have been some yes. studies and I actually recently interviewed um, an, an American neurologist, Dr. Stasha Gomanak, who's absolutely convinced that, that actually relatively high levels of serum vitamin D are crucial for, for getting good sleep patterns back in back into gear have have you done any work on that or? we haven't done any work on, on vitamin d there's there's an interesting issue about vitamin d um george ebers uh, who was at oxford he's now retired was very interested in a relationship between vitamin d and the frequency of multiple sclerosis and what he showed is that as you go from the tropics to the north where there's a significant reduction in light then you see a much higher incidence of uh, MS. Mm -hmm. um, and, but it isn't absolutely consistent. So at the same latitude, if you're higher up in the mountains and exposed to more light, there's lower levels of MS compared to people in the valley. And if you compare the coastal population of, of, of Norway, um, which eats a lot of fish and oily things with lots of vitamin D in it, um, compared to the inland population that have far lower levels of vitamin D, you, you have um, at the same uh, latitude, very different levels of MS. So there's some correlation between uh, vitamin D and neuronal development. Um, the role of vitamin D in regulating sleep isn't clear. We know, I think, I would be 99% confident that vitamin D signals are not getting to the clock and adjusting it. Uh, we know that if you have no eyes, for example, and yet you're exposing your skin, um, for example, in, in Israel, there are, are people who live outside and there are, there are, there are uh, blind societies uh, who live outside, no eyes, and their, their clocks are drifting through time. Um, so, so I don't think it's in training whether it's playing some important role in your development and in the processing of signals within the brain is certainly theoretically possible. Yes, I, we don't have enough information on it yet. Great. And lastly, um, we talk about sleep as a, as a sort of a single thing, but I mean, sleep is actually, it, it comprises a series of, of phases. Uh, are these phases of sleep important as, as much as sleep in itself? <laughs> well, that's a really good question. And so what you're talking about is, is of course, REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, um, where somebody is essentially paralyzed from the neck down and their, their eyes are shut, but they're moving their eyes, um, versus non-REM sleep, which is where you start. So you go from a quiet resting state and you go down to deeper non-REM one, two, three, and sometimes people call it four. So there's lots of terminology, but essentially you're going down one, one, two, three, four. 
and then in in three and four you're you're in deep sleep and and the brain wave activity is great rolling sort of cycling levels of, of electrical activity then you jump from that and you go very rapidly three two one REM sleep um, and then you have an episode of REM sleep and then you go back down into non-REM one two three four and then you go back up and you go through each cycle takes about 60 to 90 minutes um, and we go through what four or five of those cycles every night there's more slow wave deep sleep non-REM three four during the first half of the sleep episode and um, more REM sleep during the second half of the, uh, the episode and we normally wake from REM sleep. Now what are all these different stages doing and that's where we run into some problems. REM sleep is often associated with our most vivid and complicated dreams but that doesn't mean to say we're not dreaming uh, in the other stages of sleep it's just that uh, the depth of those levels of sleep, if you wake somebody up and say, what, what, were you, what were you dreaming? The time it takes to wake up and become conscious, the dream may have evaporated in that time. Right. Um, so I guess, I, I guess on the basis of correlation, slow wave sleep has been associated with memory consolidation, the processing of information, and REM sleep has been associated with um, the processing of more emotional information. But we really don't know. And, and it comes to a very important point. So many of the apps that you buy um, said, oh, you had a really good night of sleep, lots of slow wave deep sleep, um, and you didn't have very much REM sleep or whatever. Um, and in a sense, it's, it's to some extent meaningless. Um, and, and people have come up to me after public lectures, terribly, genuinely anxious, saying, um, I'm, I'm not getting enough slow wave sleep according to my app. Well, first of all, we don't really know what slow wave sleep is doing. And second, those apps are very bad uh, in many cases at telling you what sleep stage you've had at all. The key thing, I think the most important bit from these apps and things is, is your sleep duration. When do you go to bed and when you went up? The rest, leave it up to your biology to sort out. And telling you that you may or may not have had slow wave sleep is not helpful. In fact, going back to the anxiety issue, I think it can ironically make people more, more anxious about their sleep and therefore disrupt their sleep even further. Um, so we go through these cycles. They clearly are important. We're getting some understanding of how they're generated. Um, what's going on precisely, we don't know. Um, and that, I think, remains a fascinating, wonderful mystery. I think the whole subject of sleep is an absolutely fascinating, wonderful mystery. And I'd like to very, very much thank you for your marvelous work in this area um, and, and making us really begin to understand what's going on and also how important it is. And you're, I know that of, of a lot of science, uh, researchers in sleep, you're one of the people who are really the most active in actually getting this information out to the public, talking to people like me, thank you very much, and actually making people appreciate how vital that is, especially as we spoke about earlier in the area of mental health, which I think is a real issue these days. Well, thank so, you very much indeed. I mean, I think that those of us who are paid by the broader public have an absolute duty to convey the information that, that, that we know. And I think the more contact that we have between the academic and the non-academic communities to work together uh, to deal with some of these issues, um, the better it will be. So I, I'm delighted to contribute and help. 
Wonderful. I have three very short little questions I'd just like to squeeze in, which I ask all of my guests when they come on. Um, London Heal also looks a lot at, at kind of mind-body connection because I think that the mind never got told that the body wasn't connected. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I like to encapsulate that idea in, in, in um, three little words, health, happiness, and serenity. So health, how do you define health? What does that word actually mean for you? Um, I think, whew, uh, I, yeah, I mean, brain health and, and body health. So uh, am I relaxed? Am I a decent partner? Do I love interacting with the people I'm, I'm surrounded with? Yeah, I'm comfortable with that. And, and I do prioritize that. What for me tends to go is the, is the, the body health, if you like. I used to be a, a really good swimmer. And, you know, um, and, and because of pressure of work, you know, getting to the pool and doing all those sorts of things. So I, I 2019 is, is the year where I take my, my physical health um, a lot more seriously. But as you point out, they are intimately uh, uh, interrelated. And of course, when I was swimming competitively and, and up until fairly recently, I felt glorious. After you've done your swim, you have this wonderful buzz of endorphins. So I've been kind of naughty. I mean, I do prioritize my, 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 my brain health as much as I can, but I've let the other stuff slide a bit, and, but I'm aware of it. And I promise to work on it during 2019. <laughs> <laughs> well, come back and check up on that at the end of the year. What about happiness? What does Professor Russell Foster do uh, to get happy? Well, that makes you happy. Uh, I mean, that's, 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 that's family and friends. I mean, I think that's, I, and I think everybody says the same thing. I mean, I have a daughter who's in, in New Zealand, a daughter in Australia, and a son who works in London, and everybody came back for Christmas, and it was just wonderful. It was, it was a joyous time. And, the, and it's interesting, when, they, when they're not in the house and you don't have that laughter, it's, it's so poignant. Um, so, you know, what my wife and I do, we... We do what the Brits do. We garden, you know, we plant trees. <laughs> we, we sort of, you know, and I, but actually there's, there's a lovely bonding in that because then you're doing something together as a couple and, and then you say, oh, should we go and see how that, you know, those bulbs are doing and all those. So I think, I think there's something energetic um, and boy, planting six trees two weeks ago really took it out of me. Um, but also there, there's a lovely bonding thing. So I think happiness can be doing very simply, simple things, but it's got to be with somebody you love to spend, spend time with. And I think, I think um, and it's mentioning, I, I just got back from a wonderful trip to Switzerland, but in a sense, do I really want to wander around these wonderful cities and cathedrals on my own? You know, I'd far rather, you know, you turn around and say, oh, isn't that fun? And so I think, I think you get happiness um, hugely with the people that you like to be with. We are social animals after all, yeah. We are indeed, Absolutely. yeah. yeah. And lastly, I, like, I like to be with people all the time. There are times I'm very happy just to put my feet up with a, oh. with a whiskey and soda and watch the watch, watch Netflix. Um, but I but hear you. Know, you. Most of them, that's not <laughs> real happiness. <laughs> agreed, agreed. Which actually segues very nicely into into serenity. I think this is a word which is very often forgotten in our modern world. You talked about the significance of of, of winding down and switching over the stress axis. Um, do you have any particular practices like mindfulness and things? to actually turn the noise down and give yourself those little moments throughout the day where you're at peace? That's got to be music. For me, uh, escaping into, into music um, is profoundly important. And, and there are times when I, you know, I've been traveling a lot or I've been, I, I will go home 
and I will listen to pieces of music that I, I find restorative. Um, and in fact, some wonderful, I've, I've been very lucky enough to work and do some sort of science and arts projects with the Orchestra of the Age of, Age of Enlightenment, where we combine in schools um, music and science and, and bring the two, two together. And I find music immensely important uh, to me. I mean, and, and it's broadly classical, uh, but, but um, yes, music. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's time for me, sadly, to let you go. I could speak to you for hours and hours. It's so fascinating <laughs> what you do, but I know you have much more important things to do. So once again, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing this really, really important information with our listeners. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Tatiana. It's been a great pleasure. Yes. Hope to see you again soon. I hope so too. Anytime. Thank you. Yes. So, dear listeners, I hope that you got as much out of this episode as I did. It's really such an important subject, sleep. And Professor Russell Foster is really one of the absolute pioneer researchers in this area, um, actually responsible for discovering this photoreceptor that is uh, receptive to, to the blue light and that controls our clock. As we discussed, he's also very, very open and and very, very um, committed to getting this information out there. So there are lots of resources. Please go out and check him out on YouTube. There's plenty of interviews with him there. He's also has a TED talk, um, a TED global talk, not TEDx. Um, and you can find that all available on the net. And in addition, um, a couple of books that he recommends as a very good way to get into the subject of sleep and circadian rhythms. Um, the first of which is called Sleep, A Very Short Introduction. And the second of which is called Circadian Rhythms, A Very Short Introduction. We'll put the links to some of these in the show notes. So that leaves me, as always, to ask you very kindly to please rate, review us on iTunes so that more and more people who really need this information can actually get it. Please support us over on Facebook, like our page, and um, like also our posts that we put up there. Please, that would be great. And of course, if you would like extended show notes so that you don't have to sit and listen to episodes with a pen and paper, then please just become a London Heal Insider by going over to londonheal.com, get on our mailing list, and you will receive notifications of all the new episodes with extended show notes, which are exclusively available to London Heal Insiders. So come over to londonheal.com and do that. So that just leaves me finally to wish you all, as always, health, happiness, and serenity. <laughs>